Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Dr. Bo Bruce. Two weeks ago, the Gospel reading was also a parable about what the Kingdom of Heaven is like. In that parable, it was likened to a king hosting the marriage feast for his son. Those the king invited to his lavish feast refused not once, but twice to come. Not only did they refuse, they killed the servants that he had sent to encourage them to come. The king was understandably extremely upset and served justice upon the murderers. And next he told his servants to go out and find whomever they could, good and bad, and he thereby filled the wedding feast. However, one man was found without a wedding garment. And the king said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? The man was speechless, and he was bound and thrown into the outer darkness. And Jesus concluded the parable by saying, For many are called, but few are chosen. First, it's worth noting that the many, and for many are called, is a Hebrewism that means all. So have no doubt that all of humankind is called. I'm called, you're called, we're all called. And yet, few are chosen. So how do we make sure we have the wedding garment for the feast? Well, Stephen told us that the fathers of the church have consistently said that the wedding garment is a garment of love. And Stephen told us about the three Greek words in our Bibles that are translated into English simply as love. Those three words are agape, eros, and philia. Stephen reminded us of the first and great commandment, which is loving God and your neighbor. That's all we have to do because upon that hangs all the law and the prophets. Of course, when we say that that's all you have to do, we know it's a tall order. And Stephen told us how we could weave our garment of love from agape, eros, and philia. We should have all three types of love for both God and our neighbor. Agape is self-sacrificing love. Eros is the love that seeks union and communion with another. And philia is brotherly, familial, and friendly love. When we develop all three of those for God and our neighbor, we are fulfilling God's only and greatest commandment. Today we hear another parable about the kingdom of heaven. Peter asked Jesus about forgiveness. Hey Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Maybe seven times? Jesus says no, 77 times. And then he launches into this parable of the unforgiving servant. The parable is quite straightforward to understand for as most of Jesus' parables go, and even more so than the parable we heard last a couple of weeks ago. The king simply wants to settle accounts with his servants, and he gets to one, and he's found to owe him 10,000 talents. If we tried to convert that to a modern equivalent, we would find that this is an extraordinary sum of money, probably on the order of several billion dollars. So someone like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg probably could pay it back, but they'd be the king in the story. And even so, they wouldn't be happy about it. It would be a significant portion of their wealth. This is so much money, even they would feel the hit. So the point is, is that there's really no way, no matter what this servant does, that he could work and ever, ever pay back the king for that amount of money, unless he happens to found the next Microsoft, Facebook, or Amazon. And the king knows that. He knows it's an empty promise when the servant says, just have patience with me and I will pay you back. Because it's not possible. It ain't going to happen. 
And we, when he and his entire family are to be sold into slavery, that isn't going to make up the difference either. They aren't going to get enough money for them. It's going to be chump change compared to the 10,000 talents that this guy has somehow wasted. Obviously, in this story, we are the servant and God is king. We owe God everything. And no matter how hard we work, we cannot repay God for everything he has given us. God brought us into existence and love, has blessed us with riches beyond compare. And again, we have no hope of repaying him. So what does he do? Just as in this parable, God forgives that debt. Even though for a big part of it, we got ourselves in our own mess through our poor choices and sin. And even though we lied right to his face and said, please just have mercy on us. We'll repay it. We'll do better next time. What did we do? So many times we went out there and made the situation even worse. And however I said there's nothing we can do to repay the debt, that's true. There is something, only one thing God asks us for in return. That we show the same mercy and forgiveness to our neighbor. However, like I said just a second ago, what does this servant do when he had his life given back to him by the king despite an irreconcilable debt? He goes out and makes things worse. He goes out to one of his fellow servants who owes him a hundred denarii. That fellow servant asks for the same patience and repayment. But what does the servant do who had just received so much mercy? He refuses. He throws that fellow servant in debtor's prison. Now when this fellow servant asked for mercy, it wasn't really an empty promise like the servant made to the king. A hundred denarii was about a third of a year's wages. You start calculating that up in your head and it's a pretty painful amount of money. But let's say you had 10 or 15 years to pay that back. You'd still have an amount that would represent a significant chunk of your monthly budget, but it would probably be manageable. So this fellow servant could have made good on his promise to repay, and yet the servant, who had received even greater mercy, refuses to let him do that. But of course, the story really implies that he should have just simply forgiven him his debt. Obviously, the king is pretty upset when he hears about this, and things don't turn out well for the unforgiving servant. So let's take this story and draw a parallel to the parable we talked about from two weeks ago about the wedding garment. He failed to show love for his brother, even though he was called to do so by the incomparable mercy that the king had shown him. I find it particularly interesting in this story that Matthew preserves the detail that Peter was the one that asked our Lord this question about how many times should someone forgive someone. Of course, we know from the Gospels that Peter would deny our Lord three times, despite Peter's promise that even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So much like the servant who says he will repay the impossible debt, our Lord knows that this is an empty promise too. And I raise this incident and its connection to our current reading because it also ties this parable with the one two weeks ago in the related discussion of the types of love. Let me elaborate. While Peter's triple denial is recorded in all four Gospels, John is the only one with the rest of the story. And the parallels between the story and John's Gospel of the denials of Christ and the, the um, rest restoration of Peter amongst the apostles are striking. In John's Gospels, Peter's denials take place while he's warming himself by a charcoal fire. When our Lord asks Peter three times if he loves him, the disciples arrive on a shore, and it's Jesus who is standing by a charcoal fire. 
You might think that that's just a coincidence, except that's the only, time, only two times in the entire New Testament the word charcoal appears. I think John was making a parallel. Likewise, the stories both take place as the day is breaking. That's when the rooster would have crowed, right? And so Jesus brings Peter back to that critical moment of denial, and now he asks him three times, do you love me? However, without the Greek, something critical is lost in the story. Remember, there are three words in Greek that are translated into English as love. And guess what? The same word isn't used in those six sentences that go on in the next part of the passage when Jesus and Peter talk about love. Let's hear the passage. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love agape me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love philo you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? He said, yes, Lord, you know I philo you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you, Jesus now saying, do you philo me? Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I philo you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you off to where you do not want to go. And this was to show the kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. In the story, the Lord asked Peter twice whether he has self-sacrificial love. And Peter says twice that he loves the Lord like his brother. The third time, Peter isn't just frustrated that Jesus keeps asking him the same question. Jesus isn't going to get agape out of Peter right now, but what he did was make clear his expectations. Peter's upset because the Lord condescends to what Peter was responding, philo. It's not because Jesus is asking him three times. It's because he's disappointed. Peter's disappointed in himself that he can't respond that I have self-sacrificial love for you. And Jesus has a different response here too. He says, follow me. Because that's what Peter will have to do to reach agape for God. Jesus will be satisfied for Philo for now. But he tells Peter that, that he will ultimately, he prophesies that Peter will ultimately have agape. Prophesying Peter's death, martyrdom, an ultimate form of self-sacrificial agape love. And Peter will get there by following Jesus. So what does all this mean for us? We see that the kingdom of God is one of radical love for God and neighbor, and one of radical forgiveness and mercy from God to us, and from us, and to us, with respect to our brothers and sisters. We have no excuse no excuse to show anything but love and forgiveness to our brothers and sisters. God didn't say just love your family and friends. He said your neighbor. And as we hear from the parable of the Good Samaritan, that really means everyone, even those we don't like. There seems to be a lot of vitriol in our discourse these days. It seems everyone needs something to hate. 
It appears to me that indeed we're becoming a culture defined not by what we like and love, but by what we hate. As Christians, we must show love and mercy to all. And that doesn't just mean the people who we think are acting good or who we like. It means everyone. It means that when someone murders a handful or even hundreds of people in senseless violence, we have to show them love and mercy. Not that their actions, which are unquestionably evil, they are, but for them as our fellow neighbor who has been ensnared by the all-too-real demons that Father Michael was talking to us about last week when he was here. We must guard our ears and our eyes and our souls before those evil ones enter our bodies and souls and lead us astray. And don't take what I'm saying the wrong way. Those who act unlovingly are responsible for their actions, not merely possessed by the devil. But we're here to help heal that. And that starts with recognizing that even if we have not done exactly the same thing, we are as guilty in the eyes of God as all those that did do those things. This is why we can stand with St. Paul before we receive communion and say, we are chief among sinners. So how can we cultivate this very difficult task of loving those who are so easy to hate? Well, guess what? It pretty much comes down to the same things we always talk about. And yet, if you're anything like me, you're still trying to put them into action, so let's remember what they are. First, give thanks to God, who has been so merciful and loving to us. When we realize all the blessings that God has showered upon us, it's a radically freeing experience. You realize that so little of what you have done has put you where you are, and so why not be willing to give it all away? Yes, you need to work hard, and that's expected, but you could have ended up born in sub-Saharan Africa or in an Indian ghetto, and your life would have likely been quite different, and yet you have no control over that. And as I've said before, never forget that by simply being born here in America, probably every one of you is in the 1% of the world in terms of material wealth. Thanksgiving is upon us. Think hard about all you have to be thankful for. But just as in this parable, that's not really what matters, that material wealth. And that brings me to the second point. As Christians, you have a spiritual wealth. And that spiritual wealth is boundless. You are rich beyond belief. We have the gift of the ancient Christian faith that Christ himself deposited with the disciples and which has been faithfully passed down to us by the fathers and mothers of this church. It cost us nothing. It cost them, in many cases, their lives. It's a life-altering gift that we can share with everyone we meet. So we can give alms. And again, that doesn't just mean money. That means agape, self-sacrificing our time, energy, and resources to help those around us. It means philo, loving our brothers and sisters in this world. It means fasting, not just from food, but from all of our luxuries. And fasting is made even easier by being so generous that what you have, that by being so generous with what you have, that you have less for yourself. It means prayer, so that we can grow in communion, eros, with God and our neighbor. And that all said, finally, don't be so hard on yourself that you bring yourself to despair. Jesus was even willing to meet Peter, the rock upon which the church was built, where he was and with what he was willing to offer at that time. Peter wasn't ready for agape, just feel it. However, all we have to do like Peter is faithfully follow Jesus. 
If we do, we will, like Peter, weave our garments of love with Philo for our neighbors in God, grow in greater communion with God and our neighbor in the Eucharist and the other actions that we take, and be willing to sacrifice, even should our lives be necessary for God and our neighbor. After all, they were never ours to begin with, except through the boundless love and grace of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.